Hello, everyone. This is Brett here, and uh, I'm joined with a couple of people that probably need no introduction, but this is kind of the the welcome back to content creation for one of our favorite guys, uh, Mr. Van Van. You want to say hi? We haven't heard from you in a while. I'm a, I'm a washed up old player here, Brett. Like, it's been a while since I've actually touched Sivna. But yeah, it's good to be it's good to be back with you guys again. Uh, we've been sort of uh, playing Civ again here. I know we've been talking about Martels, and I've been painting my Martels as well, and uh, sharing to Brett like how I painted those. So yeah, it's been a while, but glad to be back. Yeah, I think I think overall the Martels have kind of been a, a nice breath of fresh air to the meta, uh, to be honest, and they seem to be very well received. I wouldn't be surprised. If you know they had some statistics that said the Martels have sold faster than any other faction upon release, so I find them pretty exciting. And uh, we're also joined by the infamous, famous, however you want to look at it. It is Mr. Carlo. How are you doing today, Carlo? I'm great, thank you, Brett. Uh, yeah, it's definitely infamous, you know, uh, and I and I'm okay with that. Um, yeah, I'm always always happy to come and chat uh, about song and uh, especially uh, new stuff like the Martels. Still super super interesting to me, and uh, really hoping to get some uh, good discussion around uh, where we think they're going to be um, in the in the near future. Awesome. So I think anybody who's a fan of Small Council will know that. I attempted a small council episode and it was an absolute disaster. Um, I lost Wi-Fi in the middle, completely disappeared. Um, I had trouble getting you on. So I did this very awkward monologue for a while. And then you had a monologue. And then by the time we sorted it out, we basically ran out of time. So what the purpose of this episode is, is to essentially do what I wanted to do in that small council episode. And that's to kind of talk about Martels. We'll very briefly cover what they do and then the majority of it we're going to be talking to you about how to counter martels how they kind of make you play differently than what you might be comfortable with but i think the three of us agree that martels are very strong but they're certainly uh much easier to beat if they're the juggernaut of the meta so um any general points you guys want to add uh you first carlo before we get cracking on what martels actually do no, I think um, I, th I think I think you really hit the nail on the head there. Um, Martels are interesting to me because uh, they're bringing not a what like a totally different style than anything else was brought before, but they're doing it in a slightly different way to everybody else. We'll touch on the cards and why that is, um, but they're they're really introducing a very unique overall play style, and I think that is very interesting to delve into. And it is uh, currently. Um, working pretty well for them and uh, I think that they've got a great marriage between their actual implementation on the table and how people think that the Martels should function so it's just great that they're doing that very very well and implementing that really well so uh, I think that that's what's um, serving them well at the moment. And for you Van what do you make of it you think they're roughly where they should be or I think the joke for Martel is that they're the orange Lannister, which I think like everyone who I talked about Martel seems to think that this is how a Lannister deck should function and Lannister should be maintaining the tempo of the battlefield while giving small but noticeable debuffs to the opponent. And this is something that we very rarely see in song where it's always all about buffing yourself, playing combos with each other and then like just doing like the one-two punch, whereas Martel specializes in 
maintaining a very sort of not exactly hard control like Lannister counterplot kind of style, but more like if you do this, this will happen. Oh, you cannot do this because this thing will this thing prevents you from doing that. So a lot of these sort of small decisions that the opponent has to do, um, which is also supported by how the Martel playstyle plays, which brings them a very interesting thing on the battlefield. They're not exactly like you cannot do this. It's more like you can do this, but it will cost you. And I think that's a very sort of interesting way to look at Martel. Yep. I, I completely agree with all of those points. So uh, we can get cracking. Uh, let's just kind of do a very quick cover of their basic deck uh, and see how these cards function. And we can ask uh, on each one, I'll ask each of you how you feel about the card. We don't necessarily need to rate it, just if you think it's super good, bad, terrible. Um, so we start with superior positioning. Um, this is when you're charged. If they charge you in the front, they're disorderly. One, two, three. If they suffer a disorderly charge at all, they become vulnerable. So the only thing I take from this card is I, I see a number of players make the mistake where if they're being charged in the flank, they have this card in hand and they're going to pitch it at the end of the round. They don't even bother to try to play it because they think it has no effect. But in all actuality, you even if they're charging you in the flank, you still have a 16% chance to make them vulnerable because the card says if they suffer a disorderly charge, they're vulnerable. It doesn't say they have to charge you in the front to get the vulnerable token. So while it won't be a one, two, three, they can still become vulnerable. If you're going to throw the damn card out anyway, just throw it, try to get them vulnerable. Uh, other than that, I, it's, I mean, it's a 50-50. When it works, it's cool, but this card works so rarely. It's 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 almost like the dice know that this card's being played, and it's always a four plus charge when I see this card come down. So, uh, what what do you make of the card, Carlo? Um, I think it's it's relatively low impact. Like it it, it doesn't really do um, a huge amount. It's not a card that your opponent would think second think twice about charging at all in case you had superior positioning. But even though it doesn't do a lot, I don't think it's a brilliant card. It already starts to set the tone for what the Martel deck is going to do, which is, as Van Van says, when you do something, there might be negative consequences about it. Um, it's really just another addition once we start to put in the really powerful cards as to like things that your opponent always has to think every action they might take has downsides to it. So um, it, it su suits the deck very, very well. It's not a very, very powerful card, but it's still fine. And Van Van, how do you feel about it? In general, I dislike card that uh, sort of gives you benefit when the opponent does something bad, as in they roll a one or two or a three. Um, but the thing about the superior positioning is that it the vulnerable token, again, very low chance of it's actually... Oh, well, I'm not saying it's very low chance, but there's a chance it might succeed. The vulnerable token might be more important than you think. Because um, for Martel, uh, I think the overall army has sort of a bit of a difficulty in pumping on vulnerable tokens, especially if you're running Oberyn. So things like superior positioning that can give you a free vulnerable, quote unquote, is okay. And like Brett said, you know, just use it. I mean, there's it's not exactly a bad card. I mean, if you see an opportunity, just use it. You might as because you're going to pitch it at the end of the round anyway. Yep, I agree with all of that. Um, so if nobody has any points to add, we'll move on to Unbound, Unbent, and Broken. Of course. Cool. Okay. So this one, this one is powerful. So 
the summation is uh, you can reroll dice for a panic test, any dice as normal per reroll panic test, panic test dice cards. This one has the stipulation that if you control the swords, you automatically pass. So in my opinion, it's just a strong card, period. Uh, in all versions of the meta that we've ever seen, panic is always a big thing. They try to mitigate panic damage or adjust it and make it not as important. It always, the game always revolves around panic. So being able to auto-pass panic is awesome. Then it has a kicker, which is where this card goes from like A tier to like S tier, in my opinion. We're not going to tier all the cards, but this card is just phenomenal. So you target one enemy in long range of this unit and attach this card to them until they're targeted by the combat zone or until one of your friendly combat units is destroyed, then they get negative two to all morale tests until this card comes off. This, in conjunction with uh, Vicious, with Panic Tokens, with things like Flayed Men, INT Presence, this card just gets completely bonkers, uh, making negative five, negative six Panic Tests, abilities to generate Panic Tokens with Ilaria. This is a moneymaker card. Uh, I fear this card probably right up there with one other card in the deck that we'll get to, but I think this is one of their best cards, period. I, yeah, I, think, I, think, I think you're Sorry, so right. That this is um, this is a cra crazy strong card. I think auto-pass of Panic is, is, is one of the best things that you can possibly get on a card these days, um, <clears throat> especially when you think about the timing of it, which is, um, you know, it's after you've failed that test. Of course, it has to come at that point in the trigger timings, but that means that you've been through all the windows in which your opponent has like spent a hear me roar. They've spent a there's too many. They've spent all these cards to increase the amount of damage that they're doing. If you're very scared of a one time big explosive panic test, which a couple of the most powerful factions right now are actually built around and are, are looking to make big explosive plays off of, you can close that down after they've put all the resources into the test and then automatically pass. There is, of course, the requirement to um, control swords for the automatic pass. But as we'll come to later, that zone is so important and the whole faction revolves around it. And most importantly, has ways to manipulate the fact that they are often the people who do control it. So even if it didn't have that second part with the attaching to the enemy, I would say that this was an amazing card. And then that bonus mor morale debuff onto your opponent is so, so good. And Van, how do you how do you take it? Nothing else can be said other than uh, like what Carlos said. Um, a lot of plays in this game, um, at least the quote-unquote plays to one-shot an enemy, usually revolves around 8 damage from the wound and then 4 from Panic Tests with Intimidating Presence, which is the maximum that you can get from Panic Tests. Uh, the fact that um, you know, opponent has already pumped all their resources. Say, for example, you're fighting against Barathe and charging with Flayed Men. They played Our Sister Fury with a Panic uh, token already set up from a previous tax bit or something. You smack uh, smack the opponent, deals lots of critical damage, deal your maximum eight wounds, and then, you know, uh, they do the Panic Test, etc., and you take four, and you just go, unbound. And then they go, well, shit. <laughs> well, that's bad. And so this it's... Free pan and, and this in this for Martel, because I think we're going to go through this when we're talking about like the faction strengths and weaknesses. One of the biggest weaknesses of Martel is morale. They actually have a sort of a sort of an average morale stat. So mm -hmm. anything that can improve their morale, uh, especially cards such as you know, free panic, uh, basically panic tests, 
it's just extremely powerful and it directly counters their natural weakness of being panicked to death, essentially. Yeah, it's again, you know, just reiterating, it's a card that I very, very much fear. Um, so we can move on from that one on to Ruinish Vengeance. Um, in terms of revenge cards or attached to enemy type cards that give you an effect, this is there. Uh, on death card, revenge type card, but it, it does stuff to you. And I think it's one of the better ones, actually. It uh, it does come into play a lot. So you attach it to the enemy when they kill a unit, you put an order token on it, just as normal. Uh, when it has a token, they get if they roll a one on attack dice, they uh, suffer a wound. This does include ranged attacks. And then while it has a token... And the opponent controls the crown when you're targeted by a tactic zone. Before resolving the effect, they suffer a wound. So again, on this one, the number of times that a unit is alive, just barely holding on to an objective on the other side of the table with one or two wounds left, happens a lot more than you think. So being able to use Peter Baelish to control crowns or just target that unit with the crown for a wound plus the panic test is really strong. And then additionally, you are actually able to target them with the wealth zone and choose to heal them zero and just deal them a wound from this card. And then, of course, you can put a condition token on them to deal them a wound. So you can remotely basically kill a unit, uh, especially if it's a solo, with this card. I think it's really, really strong in terms of the on-death card. So it's an interesting take on it because instead of buffing your unit, you're doing damage to an enemy. And I think it's quite strong, actually. I, I agree that um, in terms of the, um, the 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 quest mechanic, as they're sometimes called, cards that every deck pretty much has one one version of. Um, this is up there in terms of like its actual raw power. Um, the the wounds, the wounds on attacks, and then the uh, remote wounds are all really really powerful effects. Um, and and I think that that's um, you know uh, makes it a good card in its own right. But on top of that, I actually think that what we're going to start to see um, is one of the real powers of Martel is that, especially if you're new to playing against Martel, there are going to be so many effects happening to your units and so many different things to keep track of in the game that it can be, become incredibly overwhelming for somebody who's new to play against Martels. And this is just more things that you have to think about being attached to your units, some of which will remain for the rest of the game, some of which can be removed. And it can become very mentally taxing to think about your strategy as well as all the cards that may or may not come out, as, as well as all the cards that are already in play, how that will impact the tactics board. And this just really plays and double down, doubles down into that strategy that there are going to be a lot of things going on against Martels, debuffing your own unit, making problems for you. If this quest card was a buff to the Martel unit, it would be pretty straightforward and not such an important thing for you to think about. But when it's a debuff to one of your units, it's just another thing that you have to be hyper aware of that a unit might just suddenly take wounds you weren't expecting or suddenly die from a from a, a remote kind of tactics board effect. So, yeah, I think that it plays incredibly well into the theme and power of the Martels as just a confusion strategy to your opponent. And your take on this one, Van? 
I think in general, I still dislike the whole quest card as a mechanic uh, in all the all the base decks because you get a wide range of cards, right? You get one that's extremely useful, you got that one that's extremely not very useful, and you get that one that's sort of like in the middle. Uh, for Roinish Vengeance, um, it's probably one of the uh, upper ones out there. I think a lot of the effects on it is, like Carlos said, mentally taxing your opponent. And also, in a way, also mentally taxing for you as well, because you then need to remember every single time your opponent rolls one, or if you target them while you're also having a crown, something will happen. And this goes more in, like, for example, when you're playing offline more so than online, because, like, for example, you would roll a dice, uh, you would roll, roll the attack, and then as they were sort of picking up their dice with the rerolls, etc., you roll your defense, and you go, hold on, how many one was that in the in the dice roll? And you go, whoops, I picked up the dice already. So it's a lot of these things that you sort of need to remember when you're playing offline. Online is a little bit easier because there's the, um, you can check, like, well, how, how many dice you roll. But I think... What I dislike about this card, and uh, it's just because it's there's a lot of admin administrative work, I would say, in remembering that this card exists. It has a token. It's doing something to your opponent's unit rather than the actual powerful effect of the card. And it is a really powerful card because, again, free damage, one auto wound when you roll one, especially when you have things like Spear Lord that can give uh, weaken when they activate. It gets really powerful, and they punish your opponent for just even existing. Um, which is what this card does. But I think keeping in mind um, that there's a lot of these things that will happen, uh, both for you and your opponent, you need to be aware that um, Roinish Vengeance is online. So every time you want to roll something, just you know have a mental note that every time they roll one, they take one. And that's about it with this card, really. Okay. Uh, no one has anything to add. We'll move on to the next. Yep. Go ahead. Okay. Sand. Sand Diplomacy. This one's interesting, so I'll just preface this one by saying, initially when I looked at this, this was one where I kind of assumed that maybe there was a mistake with the wording because it allows certain NCUs to fire off before they would lose abilities. The more I think into it, sometimes it's a trapping to assume that maybe the developers made a mistake, and it could just be that it's kind of a power check on this card to allow some NCUs to still work um, and maybe they decided that that was fine and the power level of this card was where it should be. So uh, first your opponent chooses a tactic zone, then you choose a zone. First time someone claims one of those zones before resolving the zone's effect, um, the NCU that claimed the zone loses all abilities and one enemy combat unit becomes weakened. So essentially it's simultaneous with the NCU's abilities. So something like Amon, Pycelle, they can fire off before, but influence NCU's need to be worried about this. Now, as a Martell player, I haven't gotten a lot of use out of this card. If anything, it tends to sometimes work against me. So a lot of times I just don't play the card. Now, if I'm playing against maybe another Martell that has Oberon, and I know that they want to get Oberon down immediately, it could work, and I could see it being valuable because the weakened token is nice in and of itself, but being able to potentially blank Oberon for the round if they claim the zone that I've marked is pretty solid. So um, it's for me, it's situational. Sometimes I play it, sometimes I don't. It just depends on the opponent, and maybe that's what it's intended to do. So what, what do you make of the card, Carlo? So it being start of any round rather than the start of any turn is the big thing that really checks um, the level of its power. You, you you have to commit 
incredibly early when the whole tactics board is still open um, to block just a couple of zones. You can't wait until the tactics board is mostly filled and then and then put this down on the last two uh, zones. It does have an effect um, in combination with the rest of the deck, which is heavily built around the uh, swords and the crowns as two zones that you want to control. The swords, most specifically, there are a lot of occasions where you really want to uh, dissuade your opponent from taking swords because that's going to allow them to remove lots of effects, remove your cards, um, remove your debuffs. So I think its value is another um, kind of dissuading of your opponent from wanting to take swords, although there are plenty of other better ways to do it, um, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to discuss. It is it it is a confusing card, and there are times where it can backfire on you. Um, I I think again it kind of weighs into that. Um, and and Van Van was right actually. Um, when he's talked about the mental taxing isn't only on the opponent of the Martel player, Martels in general being played into the game, possibly just because they're new, feels like one of the most mentally taxing factions to play with and against at the moment. And sand diplomacy is just another layer on top of that. Again, you ask your opponent to make the more taxing kind of decision, which is they must pick first. And they're trying to predict where you want to pick and where they will then want to pick and all sorts of things. You get to respond to that in kind. So you have a slightly easier kind of thought process. But you do have the added problem of you have to choose whether or not to play it. Uh, which is it? Which is a decision in itself. So yeah, I I think it's a very weird card. I don't know where to place it. I think it can have some value, but uh, I'm struggling with it myself. Yeah, to see to see whether it really has the impact it's supposed to. And then, I think the value of sand diplomacy it really depends on the skill level of yourself and your opponent. I think this is one of those uh, high skill uh ceiling uh, almost kind of card like first of all uh when you play it um when you're sort of like a good player or you know sort of the game a bit more than the other player you then you would pick you would know like which zone to block almost immediately because then you know all right this has the most benefit to the opponent um and then your opponent can also then uh, probably think of what you then will block and sort of like pick the other one that because there's sometimes this very sort of almost obvious zones that you want to block um, in the sense that uh, it's not exactly blocking, but it's more like, oh, if you do this, you know, bad things will happen. Your NC will lose all abilities and they become weakened. So, for example, if they get cheeky and take a sword, then they become weakened before they really resolve the sword or something along that line. But um, it's a very high skill ceiling in a sense that um, you can just pick like a completely random zone because you just want to use the card. And then, like, two activation later, you go, oh, shit. I shouldn't have done that because, <laughs> and like Brett said, I, I shouldn't even play this card because it's 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 a bit it's a bit useless. So, yeah, send send diplomacy is one of those things that you probably need to think twice when playing. Uh, I sometimes when I want to play the card, I would think of how I would mark the NCU zones. And then I go like, you know what? I can't be bothered marking the NCU zones and explaining this to my opponent. So I'll just not play this card. But yeah, it's one of those cards that I think um, we'll, we'll get discarded to things like adaptive planning that I think one of the uh, discard to pick one from uh, Ario Hota. But yeah, this is uh, one of those cards that I don't really play a lot. Okay. So I think we're at a pretty decent consensus on this one. And uh, so we can move on to 
probably the, you know, the, the version of Lannister's counterplot. You don't talk about this deck without talking about this card. It's Rising Temperatures. Uh, it's the first time that we've ever seen a debuff card go this far. Uh, we've seen can't be targeted by cards, and we've seen minus one to hit. We've never seen cannot just flat out cannot restore wounds, and we've certainly never seen all of these combine off of one card. So uh, they're, they get this card attached until they're targeted by the swords. It's the only way to get it off. Um, they get debuffs based on the game round, and they accumulate. So starting in round two, they can't be targeted by tactics cards. Round three, they're minus one to hit, ranged and melee. Round four, they can't restore wounds. Uh, this card is infinitely powerful, probably the center of everyone's kind of grumbling about Martels is this card. If you play Greyjoys, if you play Night's Watch, um, those two in particular are very punished by this card because they depend on that healing. But additionally, a lot of those sources of healing come from cards. And then for Night's Watch, they're not able to really get their vows attached and get going. So it can be very oppressive. And depending on the time at which the Martell player plays this card, you might have to go almost two full rounds without being able to get rid of this card. So um, I think if anything was adjusted in Martell's, they could maybe make this card start in round three. Like round three, four, five would be pretty fair. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, maybe make it somehow ease, a little bit easier to remove. You don't want to make it removed by like a morale test like bribery. Because then I think it drops to bribery where people, you know, maybe don't like it very much. But I don't know how you make another stipulation to remove it. Um, but that could be another way to balance this card. Because as it is right now, I feel like if this card goes down and the Martell player isn't on his back foot reeling, then this is a death sentence for the unit that it goes on. Um, what do you make of it, Carlo? Yeah, I think I think I think you're right that this is basically the defining card of the deck it, it is going to weigh on your opponent's mind a lot because of the impact and power that it has and the fact that that means that later in the game as the game drags on its effect is going to be multiplied and magnified and that can have a lot of mental pressure on your opponent to feel like they have to be the aggressor they have to try and get ahead in the first couple of rounds before rising temperatures drops on them and and totally swings the game against them i think that um all three effects individually are quite good um when they're cumulative by round four it is such an incredibly powerful debuff as you say cannot restore wounds is a crazy, crazy, crazy level effect in itself. And then when we think about the fact that actually like a lot of factions and the game as a whole right now in the way that it plays out is is very healing based. The game at, um, you know, like quite an experienced tournament level in season one specifically is very, very sustain and heal heavy, and that this entirely shuts it down is actually one of the things that I'm most interested to see just how much of an impact Martells and their release has upon the whole like ecosystem of competitive play because them being such a hard counter with this card alone, plus other effects that they have to like the healing heavy armies out there, 
is very, very interesting to see what kind of impact it will have. I can't understate how much impact I think this card has upon the mentality of the game and the reality of playing against Martels. So yeah, it's it's by far the faction-defining card for me. And for you, Van? Card's insane! So I think like what you guys haven't mentioned is that the trigger of this card is also like silly, because it's when an enemy combat act- unit activates. So it's like probably one of the best timing for a debuff for opponent. Opponent goes, all right, I want to commit this unit to do something this round. And then you go, whoop, rising temperatures. You can't be targeted by tactics card. You suffer minus one to hit. And also, you know, you suffer, you cannot restore wounds. And then they suddenly go, well, <laughs> that's, that's pretty bad. Because then they wanted to do something. They wanted to, for example, like attack an opponent. They suffer minus one to hit. For example, they want to use Tactics card when they want to declare an attack, like Arsis of Fury, suddenly they cannot use it anymore. Or like if you're a Targaryen player, you want to do Overrun, you can't do it anymore. So there's a lot of things that this card just, just shuts off from your opponent. It breaks, your, it breaks their tempo, it breaks how the game is played, because suddenly that unit is almost dead. In a sense, like for example, on turn three, like if you have initiative, um, and then you put this card in your opponent, and then next turn, they have to take an ineffective zone like sword just to relieve that unit of this debuff and then you just take money back to heal one of your guys so depending on when you also attach this rising temperature it could also mean that this unit can just not remove the debuff at all or by forcing them to take a sword zone then it makes that unit suddenly like inefficient in what they're trying to do like for example if you attach this to a unit of, I don't know, Lance Cavalier or something, and then by round three, they don't have a good target for Sword, then essentially they don't want to get rid of this, this card because it's just stick there and they don't do anything. So yeah, this is a faction-defining card. I think um, Carlos mentioned that there's a lot of healing in the meta right now, which, you know, I love watching games where it's just a lot of grind, but at the same time, it's too much healing to some extent like every faction has access to healing back then it was even worse because of taiko taiko exists for four points and he can heal for five now it's a little bit nerfed um people don't really use taiko anymore but imagine if this card exists when taiko was was in its heyday and then suddenly you wanted to heal your units and then suddenly then this card exists and then you know you can't heal your units so yeah really like this unit uh, this card I think Brett mentioned that this might uh, there's a potential that this card might get looked at. I'm like, nah, this is fine. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's potential for it to get looked at. I was just saying, you know, if if they were if they ever made a choice to do something with Martels, this would be a candidate for it. But nonsense. Um, the card is called Rising <laughs> Temperatures. They're they're <laughs> fighting in the desert, even though they're fighting against I don't know Night's Watch in like. <laughs> it's like the north and suddenly they get heated up i'm just saying flavor wise this is probably like a really cool card for marcel because you know it's a desert thing it is and it's, it's getting hot you know you get dehydrated you're wearing armor bam rising temperatures anyway it's moving on <laughs> super cool it's a super cool super unique card i uh i think it has a place and we're just gonna have to learn how to play it so before we move on from this one it's actually really interesting um because you mentioned the trigger and I know we're going to cover here in just a second about how you can beat Martels. But the interesting thing with the trigger of that card is if you're playing Targaryens and you're running Barrist and Selmy, you I think they might be the only faction that can 100% guarantee without a doubt that this card is never attached to their best unit. 
because you can always activate sell me before you activate the combat unit and you can always put sell me on the unit that you don't want to get this card like drogo Flademan. and you can always remove sell me when when you activate if they try to play it on you and then if they don't play it on you when you activate why you still have sell me on there for something else so um it's actually just interesting that sell me's kind of come around full circle again um because he's a very strong counter to this card and you have counterplots and uh boisterous charisma they're not overly popular but um drogo and and sell me bffs they can they can keep it off of drogo Sell me, of course, is one of those influence effects, though, that sand diplomacy can cause problems for. So, you know, what's, what's, what's so interesting about Mar the Martel deck is every time you think that you see a way to counter their cards, their deck very well supports each other to make that a near impossibility if they all come out and play in conjunction. The, the deck really just supports each other and the play style of the units incredibly well. And I think that that's what's, um, what's causing the most frustration and implementation of what we think that the Martel should be. Yep. Okay. So anything else from you, Van, before we move on from this one? Move, moving on. Okay. Uh, cunning ploy. You know it, you love it. I don't even think we really need to discuss this one. Uh, the difference in this one is that the swords is the kicker uh, to put a vulnerable token on you. Um, we've seen this card before. This is nothing new. Having this card in the base deck is so silly. <laughs> this is card is so busted. It is so strong. Such a strong card. Like with Spearman, he's just going to put your Spearman in an objective and they do nothing the entire game. And then you cunning ploy your sand skirmishers in like a flank. And then you just go, well, well now. Yep. It's one Cushions. of the reasons sand skirmishers are so good. Uh, they have, you know, the ability to get to this horse on the tactic zone and do stuff. And then being able to basic that cunning ploy to get either in a position to do stuff or get out of a combat that they don't want to be in so that they can be in a position to do stuff. Uh, it's a little bit of a nightmare when you get to those skirmishers, but... I think um, it will also give some value when um, when the Starfall Knights start getting used. Uh, being able to, as you say, pull them out of combat and allow them to charge again um, mm -hmm. has has great effect. I think Cunimploy is, again, a wildly powerful card, as you discussed. Like, it is one of the most high impact things that you can do in the game is like take a m big move that your opponent hadn't seen coming uh like re re realigning a unit suddenly like you quick get hold of a flank that your opponent thought that they couldn't have or something like that maybe even pull off a charge that they had no idea was going to come uh to put it in the base deck as vans mentions is is very 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 strong and I sound like a bit of a broken record at this point, but that it's another card that your opponent has to continuously think what might happen if they have cunning ploy is <laughs> more, more, more mental weight to your opponent thinking about what's going to come next against Martels. They're so unpredictable. They're so dependent on what cards are available that you just end up paralyzed if you try to overthink it. But you do need to keep in mind all the various plays that they could make. You never can know what their hand is. Um, so I think, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a brilliant card for them. Also, I'd just like to add that Cunning Ploy is also one of those uh, very skill ceiling type of card. Because it gives you so much options uh, in the sense that it gives you three things that you can do, maneuver, march, or retreat. And to use it in the best possible way without 
sort of sacrificing too much with the unit that you're not going to activate is also a skill in itself. Um, and you know, for Martel, luckily they have a very good five unit cheap that can just stand there and essentially do nothing the entire game. Plus, this has, card has unlimited range in the sense that you can choose a unit of spearmen that sits on like the back objective, and then suddenly your Starfall Knight on the other side of the board can do a march for six, for twelve inches. But a lot of these decisions from cunning ploy is also um, part and parcel of what goes into making a best decision for a Martel player. It's very difficult for you to sort of like say, okay, this is probably the best decision when everything else is happening. So this is one of those things that you need to sort of look, think, and then you know you'll find you'll find the way best way to use it. Uh, it might not be the best way to use it, but you'll find a way to use it. Um, finally, Dune Tactics, and we're not going to go into Commander cards here because we'll be here all day and day. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll just move to Dune Tactics. Then we'll uh, touch on the NCUs, and then we'll get into what Martels want to do and how you interrupt that. So uh, Dune Tactics, when an enemy is performing a melee attack before rolling dice, essentially we'll just shorten it up. If they have um, as many or less destroyed ranks than you, then they roll their lowest dice. So Normally, this is what you do to bust their alpha charge. Um, rolling lowest dice, depending on what's attacking, is pretty crippling. Generally, it's going to be four dice. Um, interestingly, Lance Cavalry, like Tully Cavaliers, Knights Castle Rock, are not a bad alpha striking unit into Martels because they'll only be reduced to eight dice. They don't really mind going from six to four, and then they'll still get that Lance bonus. Um, Night's Watch as well has ways to increase those dice um, we won't get into the hypotheticals with the marshal and all that, but you can reliably say that Sword in the Darkness and Boldness and Courage can kick you up to six. So that's still not terrible, still worth charging in. Now, what it does really blunt is a Flaidman charge. It really just takes the the wind out of the sails of Flaidman when they charge in, only rolling four dice. And then the kicker is Panicked and Vulnerable, which Flaidman are not a portrait of defense. They're decent defense, but they will absolutely not love to be panicked and vulnerable after this attack. So for me, the card's initial effect is super strong. And then I view it as something like some kind of weird bastardization of bribery and Baratheon justice combined together. Uh, I think it's really, really strong card. Um, and if you don't know what you're doing, you don't know that this card exists and you just willy-nilly alpha charge relying on something really bad to happen to them uh in terms of like a crippling charge from those late bin you're going to be sadly and and sorely disappointed when you roll lowest dice and probably bounce off of them i, I, uh, Carla, I think that this card is just uh, it's it's like the it's the cherry on the top of the cake in that like you you finally navigated around all the tricksy maneuvering that the Martels are going to do. You've got around all the cards where they're debuffing you. You finally made it into a charge after they played superior positioning on you. Like you finally made a charge, and then suddenly now your opponent's going to say you jumped through all those hoops to finally get to me and do some damage. Actually, you, you you're just not going to do that much damage anyway. Um, so I think that, that that it really just you know can could be the the straw that breaks the camel's back against like a person who's just desperately trying to trying to kill some Martels here. 
It's the kind of, kind of card that after all that, somebody might rage quit when this finally comes down. I think its initial effect is decent. It, it's okay. I, I wouldn't really be talking about this card were it not for its secondary effect. And I think that control of crowns into having that vulnerable and panicked after the attack is where this really swings from being meh, mediocre to really powerful. Because what you're effectively trading there is is that you're saying, okay, you come and charge me. Um, you thought it was going to be good. You thought it was going to do some amount of damage. Maybe you were hoping for six, seven wounds or something like that. It's probably only going to do half as much now. Maybe it'll do four. Maybe it'll do a rank, you know. But what you've done now is you've put yourself in a very bad position, being vulnerable and panicked, and me able to like counter and make a big attack back. A charge that you thought you were taking, like taking the initiative, getting ahead, being the aggressor and, and looking to win a grinding combat has probably just off the back of this card being played with its crowns kicker, flipped the combat entirely on its head. And now you're probably going to lose this combat in the long run unless you throw loads more resources at it. So it existing in it, in the whole deck as a whole, the last card we look at is finally you made it into combat and combat in a sustained sense is still not even brilliant against Martels. So yeah, I think um, it's just the, the the final the final kick when you're already down against the faction. <coughs> and Van, like imagine the scenario, right? You have uh, royal guards in like the middle objective of some sort, or you know up up in you know, the grill, just sort of like being there. Um, and then they charge the royal guard, hoping for like you know to at least do a lot of damage with like flayed men. You play Dune Tactics, it bounces, they punch you back with their orders. Then you take more damage to them. The flayed men get stuck. Your royal guard takes like zero damage because they have shield wall. And then you go, hmm, why am I fighting against Martel again? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, because yeah, this this happens a lot when 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 opponent tries to sort of. Um, tries to sort of break into the line and Martel has sort of this is this is where Martel's has a very weird stats distribution in a sense that they look squishy but they're not exactly squishy because you have all these silly cards that prevents the damage from happening in the first place so those sand skirmishers with their four plus uh, armor save and their six plus morale it's actually much more resilient than you think because such cards exist that reduces the damage overall in the first place. Let's say, for example, you've gotten into the sand skirmisher, you, you pin them down, and then they go, cunning ploy, spearman, I retreat with my sand skirmisher, I give you a shot, and then they maneuver, and, and sorry, then they, they, they activate their action and then they shoot you again. So it's a lot of things in the Martel-based deck that makes the faction tankier than they're supposed to be, which is weird because they're Best armor is four plus, well three plus if you're running flate men, but everyone's running flate men, so it's not exactly a standard of what most faction uses. But a lot of these combinations of cards in their uh, basic deck just makes them much more tankier than they're supposed to be. And this Dune Tactics is one of the thing that when you already get them into melee, then it's like your defensive card, essentially. Yep. So. Um... Nobody has anything to add to this basic deck. We'll uh, touch on the NCUs. Yeah, let's go ahead. Mm -hmm. So 
Obviously, similar to rising temperatures, you can't talk about the NCUs without talking about Doran's four-point NCU. Um, I think, for the most part, it's pretty common knowledge that Peter Baelish, Olena, Intrigue, and Subterfuge shut him down. Not everybody has those. Um, everybody has access to Peter, though. So, uh, except for Free Folk, do Free Folk, at the moment, do Free Folk really need to explore bard mance and explore going first in round two and then using bard probably not because i think free folk can still play the mission better uh and just still crush them uh whether they have doran or not now if you get into fire and blood and they have doran then you're probably getting into some issues but as carlo and i mentioned we don't necessarily think that something that counters free folk right now is bad so uh that said for everybody else it's it's relatively simple, but it does have implied consequences. You're going to one of the two zones that Dorne needs with Peter Baelish. You're resolving the Water Gardens. They activate a combat unit. Then you're going to the other zone that they need. Dorne is shut off. It's essentially that simple. Now, you do give the Martell some zones that maybe you don't want to, but I think it's paramount to stop Dorne at least twice. Um, at least twice, maybe three. If it if it comes down to it, but if you go take them from six VPs to two, normally that's enough that you can do the other stuff that you need to do to win the game. It's just too hard to overcome six victory points if you just ignore Doran. And tabling Martels is too difficult. So um, I'm on the fence with Doran. Uh, I know how to deal with him, so I don't think he's that bad. I've made it a point to face him. I've used Peter Baelish. It's worked just fine. I've been able to get, you know, some crushing defeats against him. I've even used Doran against my opponent. So since a lot of the Martell's kickers hinge off of the combat zone, in a key round where you want to shut down Elaria, you want to shut down UUU, you want to shut down all of these things, you can just simply take your very first start of turn before they can do anything, claim the Water Gardens. Now they have no way to control any zone. Uh, and then that's the round you lay the hammer on them and it's it's worked out pretty well for me um so what do you make of doran carlo my my honest opinion on him is he's good uh once you play some games watch some games being played and figure out how to work around him you can mitigate you can mitigate him uh if you're leaving the swords open and they don't have ranged attacks which a lot of martel players don't they're running double flayed men uh spears and like royal guard you can make the swords less key for them uh, on those rounds where Doran doesn't need the swords. So I haven't played the the Doran into or, or Baelish into Doran matchup myself, but on a theoretical basis, I dispute, shall we say, that that Baelish counters Doran. I, I think that. Um, yes, he is most people's best weapon. He is your best chance against him. But I still think that it's a terrible trade for the person in 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 ba who has Baelish. It's it's a terrible trade for the non Martel player because um, the amount that you have to throw at stopping Doran on two rounds of the game, being forced into zones that you don't want to take. Um, committing all your NCUs just to like kind of control the activation order, but not really getting zone effects that you want out of the back of that, I think um I think is a really bad trade. 
especially when you consider that Baelish for a lot in like is used a lot already. You know, it's not a sacrifice to take Baelish, but it's a sacrifice that lots of people already have plans in mind for how Baelish will be implemented. They already they take him for a key role of being able to block certain zones to stop somebody healing, to stop somebody taking swords, to, you know, th those kind of effects are also lost when you're forced onto the tactics board in certain ways. When we throw all of that in combination with the fact that Doran is only four points, I think that to not include him in one of the two Martel lists is crazy because the impact that he has on the game is is so much more than just the victory points he scores. It's forcing your opponents to take zones that they want don't want to take. It's forcing your opponent to um, play the tactics board in ways that they don't want to play it. And to have that much, shall we call it soft control, to have that much um, like kind of influence over what actions your opponent does and doesn't have to take is incredibly, incredibly powerful for four points. I do think that people will point at his victory points as the reason why games are won and lost when actually there is a lot of subtlety involved in whether or not you should allow him to score his points or not at any given situation. I think that people's over-focus on the victory points that he scores to their own detriment on the table actually will cause lots of games against Martels to be losses um, because the Martels will get free reign of, of, of actually inflicting damage and actually controlling their opponent. All the while, Doran never really got that close to scoring many victory points or swinging the game in that way. Personally, I think that he is such a power piece, and that's very interesting at four points. He does have much harder counters in the form of Olena. Olena is a big win for the Baratheon player because Olena only needs to shut him down some turns to force him to never score points. And she can still shut down other NCUs on other goes whenever she wants. If the Martell player then doesn't chase the zones that they want with Doran, then Olena doesn't even have to start shut him down anymore. So she is a very, very hard counter to him. And so I'm I'm personally glad that there are very hard counters to very powerful pieces in the game so that they don't rise to the very, very top of like tournament play and have no way to be stopped. There is a self-checking balance there that like if you are incredibly weak to Baratheons, then they're not going to be the only faction played or the only faction winning tournaments. The Intrigue and Subfuge uh, option is also there. Um, it's far less reliable, um, but uh, you know it, it gives it gives some viability to other options and other factions. I I am still very. I find it very hard to place the power of Doran because I think that people undersell the value of controlling your opponent and controlling their mindset around the game. And they're controlling the rate at which they go to various tactic zones, all for the cost of four points. I would take him. Let's put it this way: if he were available to every other faction, he would be the first NCU I picked in every game. Therefore, technically, I guess I believe he's the best NCU in the game by a large margin. Ooh, hot takes! I like it. <laughs> it's over to you, Van. I think like. Uh... 
So so I'll tell you a secret to so that every faction can at least del- uh, delay the run by at least one round. So you go second. On round two, you take Water Gardens, and then you take Crown. Everyone can do it. Because on round two, uh, Doran has to take either Crown or Water Gardens. So if your first activation on round two is to take Water Gardens, you have to activate a combat unit, and then you take Crown, but suddenly Doran cannot score that, that one round. So at least you're delaying him from like proccing on round four to round five, and everyone can do it. You just need to go second. Anyway, but, that's, but, that's but, the... but, but, but can I just jump in? What if mm-hmm. I'm running bronze Stormcrow archers? You just you just let, allowed me to take swords and money bags, and I probably have uh, I probably run um, little finger as well inside of this. So I might now be able to shoot four times with this unit, all because you wanted to block Doran, and that's such crazy mm. value for an NCU, which I bring. Not for the points he scores, but for what he enables me to pressure you to do. Yeah. So again, Duran's key strength is that okay, on round two, most people can do it, at least countering Duran for one more round, but it requires two activation from an NCU. <laughs> so it's yeah, all right. And you're taking like essentially two of the worst zones in the game in terms of like uh, you know, what you want to do on round two, where in round two you still want to get like your positioning with horse, you want to get letter from your uh, from your for, uh, for cards, you want to get rid of uh, condition token with your money bag, and if you have an archer in play, you want to shoot with your archer. So, yeah, for four points, Doran can just do a lot of those and more. And also, one of the key strengths that Doran has is, of course, he actually brings a zone to the battlefield. Now, with the changes in how NCU is played, uh, essentially having six uh, zones means that you can comfortably put three NCUs on uh, on the zone for both players. So you can play three and three to to both of them. So this is also like one of the other key strength of the run. Um, but yeah, I mean, a card's insane. Um, I think he is the faction identity for Martel at the moment. You cannot talk about Martel without discussing the strength that Duran Martel has on the game, on the tactics board, and even on the game itself. Like Water Gardens is also a very powerful zone in the sense that um, you force your opponent to activate a combat unit first, where, for example, in round two, where you're still sort of like skittering across the battlefield, you're trying to sort of pick and prod which flank is the weakest, and then, for example, if you have activation, you know, you can then move your big units last. By forcing your opponent to play a combat unit first, you're, you're forcing your opponent to make a play that you, they would probably do on like activation four when they've already played three of their NCUs. That is also like a level of control that Doran brings to the game uh, outside of everything else that Carlo and Brett has mentioned. And I think this just needs to be addressed as well on how we are evaluating the power of Doran. And yeah, everything else I think you guys already mentioned, so I don't want to spend like 30 minutes talking about Doran, so I think we should, we should move on. Yeah, I, I think we can move on. We definitely want to. The it's going to be at the end of the podcast. We want to give people hope because again, we're we're spending this time pumping up just how good Martels are, which is which is fair because they are good. But I promise we'll get into the part where we talk about how it's not so bad. Um, so if if, if, I, if I was the Martel player, then I would always bring Mar- I would always bring Doran in at least one of my lists, and I think that um, with that mindset i think anybody who expects that they will have to play into martels should have an understanding if not a concrete plan 
at least an understanding of how they're going to approach that game into Doran. There are various things that they can you can try. Try them all, you know, like try and table them. Table table the Martels. Doesn't matter how many victory points they score. Um, you can try and counter him with zones, you can try and counter him with various NCUs. But I think the real takeaway is that I would always expect my opponent to have him, and I think I would need to have a plan because I think he is that influential that you can't just make it up on the fly. So I would just tell everybody that if you're looking to beat Martels, make sure that you consider Doran as a real possibility and try some things to beat him. Yep, I think it's fair. Uh, so we'll move on. Um, we're not going to cover every NCU that they have, but I think it's important to cover who I consider the Martel big three, which would be Doran, Elaria, Oberon. Um, and then there are others, but I don't think we need to cover them. I think Alaria is just, for me, if you're playing Martels competitively, Alaria's auto-include. I just couldn't imagine playing Martels without her. The fact that she removes a token always is strong on its own. Then the fact that she can, if she claims swords, put two tokens on units in long range. She doesn't have to remove a token to do it. And it's, I mean, if she does, it's a three-token swing. So it's huge. Um, for me, she's auto-include. She makes the list tick. She adds that survivability. She gives them the ability to attack and do damage when they want. And again, she keeps those tokens off of you. So I, I think Ilaria is nuts. And for, yeah, for me, she's auto-include. Uh, how, do, how do you take Ilaria? Uh, yeah, I think, I think when you just state her raw value it, it's incredibly powerful i compare her to um Pycelle, for example who i think is a very very good ncu um in in the lanster in the lanster stable of ncus being able to give out a token um for uh on, on activation that she removes it um is 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 near nearly nearly an equivalent then that bonus of the swords giving out two of your own is, as you say, a huge swing and a huge impact. Um, yeah, I think she's very, very good. Um, and at four points, again, absolute steal. Um, why not bring her all the time? Um, the only the only problem I find with Martels is, is that I think I list maybe five NCUs. If you include the neutrals and Littlefinger and stuff like that, I end up with five NCUs that say, well, I'm going to include this every time. Um, if anything, they possibly have the strongest set of three shall we say uh debate debatable against maybe um free folks um set of uh ncus there's a lot of contest there as well i think nearly every faction has one or two ncus that are just like god i love this ncu i play it all the time but i find with the uh, martels yeah it, that that number's more like four or something like that that i want to play in every game yeah i i agree lady nim is the outlier for me because i i do Peter Baelish, Elaria, and Oberon. But yeah, like you said, you know, it's four, maybe five if you're if you're counting Lady Nim, Doran. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, of course, Peter, there's always the the fact that what's interesting, what's interesting to me is that uh, you're not even naming Tyene. And I think that uh, I, I am actually coming around to Tyene's maybe not as strong as I first thought. Um, yeah, same. 
but I think that um, her effect to dissuade people from taking swords again really combos well with the deck, really combos well with what the faction's trying to achieve. So even Tyene at five is, I think, a, a, a you know a really interesting uh, pick and idea. I barely think that they have a bad NCU among the lot. So yeah, all power, all power, all 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 gas, no breaks. All gas, no breaks, including even uh, we'll touch on Commander. Doran, we're not going to go into him, but even even he as an NCU for what he can do to Arya Hote or however you say his name is powerful. I mean, he's really good. A, a five point package with an NCU and an attachment that's as good as Arya. Um, I, I say he's at least two points. Uh, borderline, maybe a three point attachment because coordinated assault is incredibly powerful. Um, and being able to do the maneuver or march off of any zone, even the five point Doran NCU has play. So Alaria San is uh, what I would call the mum type NCU, the one that removes condition token from one of your units. And there are, I think, three of this uh, in the game. We got Alaria San, we got Caitlyn, and we got Danny. And <coughs> out, of, out of those three, um, Alaria is definitely the strongest one. Um, Danny only buffs sort of like attacks and rerolls on, um, sorry, she buffs uh, rerolls on charges, right? If I'm not mistaken. Or, Danny buffs. She always gives rerolls. On always gives three rolls. Yeah, always gives three rolls, and then Caitlyn does uh, something that I can't even remember. Oh, oh she just attacks on highest dice. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but Alaria is the one that sort of can give you, uh, can can remove, and then also can give your opponent just by quote unquote removing a zone. You just need to target a unit. If there's a condition token, you remove it. If not, then you just essentially give two free tokens to the opponent if you if you have a sword, and like the fact that you can. Pick whichever condition token um, yeah. you would like yeah. to those enemies. So it's like, oh, um, you you want to attack me? How about you take two weaker? How about you take weaken? Or like, oh, I'm planning to attack you. How about you take vulnerable? They can she can choose like whichever uh, condition token that she wants, depending on what uh, is most beneficial to you. I think it's part of her key strength. And yeah, it's very hard for me to pick like what's the top three for Martel because I want. All of them, but Ilaria is definitely in like one of those trees. All right, um, and then we'll touch on Oberyn. Oberyn, I think, uh, infinitely strong. He is essentially a hold the line, except for he's hold the line every single time you attack that unit. Um, he's a very strong deterrent when paired, especially with uh, set for charge from. Uh, Harman Euler, they're probably their most popular and most powerful commander. Um, just sometimes it's not even an option, depending on what you're running. Like if you're running Bolton Bastards Girls, it's it's not even an option to charge if you suspect that they have set for charge. Um, because five hits on six plus defense, it's not unlikely for you to take all five. And then on a set for charge, depending on how the dice fall, you might get one shot before you even make an attack. Um, I think he's very good um, in terms of dissuading anything from attacking you. Now, there's, of course, play. If you're going to charge or make your attack, you do it on a round where you go first before Doran, before Oberon is an impact. But for me, he's just so good. He's a danger to even something like Flademan because of those Ilaria vulnerable tokens. Um, they work together very well. And you can peel a rank off of a unit before they even attack. 
uh, how do you make, uh, what do you make of Oberon, Carlo? Yeah, I think um, he he's not such out and out uh, power or out and out um, kind of needs to be thought about continuously as Alaria and Doran. I definitely see him as the third. But like I say, I think I think they have such a powerful set that it's really hard to pick between them anyway. What I find super interesting or what's super useful about his ability is, is that, of course, it's not an attack. It's just hits that are generated. So it can circumnavigate a lot of different effects. It can circumnavigate things like hardened. It can... Um, it can get damage done to units that you don't want to directly attack. Um, it's it, it's very very powerful. It's another um, kind of it's another effect in amongst the. Um, hey, I know you think you're going to grind me down because I don't have a great profile, but you know what? Actually, I surprisingly win in like engaged combats in ways that you wouldn't think think about. So yeah, I do think that his impact um, and his effect can be can be really really powerful. You definitely want to worry about it if you're you know playing um, a very high aggression kind of um, you know low defense unit, anything like Bolton Bastard Girls or uh, or maybe like Reavers or anything which you know cutthroats. All those units who rely on being able to kill something quickly and then get unengaged again uh, because of their damage output, this is going to be a nightmare for them. So, uh, yeah, I think I think I think he's good. Um, he's definitely third tier for me by comparison to the other two. Uh, so, have- so Oberyn uh, sort of also like uh, encapsulates the the thing I said earlier about Martel being like randomly tanky. Because of the deterrence of this card, essentially saying to your opponent, "Yeah, sure, you can punch me, but then you take like some amount of damage back, and are you sure you want to do that?" Um, so it's more like uh, a tankiness in a way that it's not exactly in their defense profile, but more like in a lot of things that prevents the opponent from doing things to you in the first place. And Oberyn just sort of ensures that whatever unit that Oberyn is influencing, your opponent, whenever they try to attack, will get attacked back. And this is part of the decision making that you need to do when you're up against a unit that you think you're going to finish it off like relatively easy, like skirmishers. Again, why do I keep coming back to skirmishers? Because they have like probably a very squishy stat line and they operate in a very short range. And this is one of those units that you want to pin down as fast as you can to ensure that they just don't run around a battle and shooting your guys. Things like Oberyn being influenced to them suddenly means that whatever stray attacks that they will take your opponents will then uh, take some more back, even before they attack, uh, roll their attack dice. So they can already shave off, like, maybe if they're lucky, like, the first ranked uh, is gone, so then they'll be left with their second dice profile. And But the biggest, biggest weakness of Oberyn is because Martel has already such a good NCU anyway that I cannot bring Oberyn over Baelish, Doran, and Ilaria. I just cannot. It's... It's unfortunately um, the decision that you have to take when you're making a Martellus. And between uh, those two powerhouses of Elaria and Doran, picking a third is probably your biggest uh, biggest decision when you're trying to make a Martellus. There is, of course, a question about whether or not Doran should be in both of your lists. And I think that that's when we start to discuss the value of Oberyn and maybe even, uh, you know... Tyene or, uh, or or kind of Commander Doran at that yep. point. 
because there are some hard counters to Doran out there and there might be times where you don't want to play that play style at all or maybe you just want to offer a different list which has a or fire and blood outset. Uh, exactly fire and blood or uh, um, you know and Oberon plays into that so I see Oberon as um, a very distinct uh, other option if you're not going to play the Doran strat but I would always be playing them in one of my two list pairing uh, so yeah I think I think it's you know, still important that they have Doran as a very, very powerful influential NCU um, to be an option when you're not going to go down the Doran Martel route. Any anything to add to what Carlo said? I I tend to agree with Carlo. However, I uh, I just generally don't run Doran. That's a that's a combination <laughs> of yeah, it's a combination of despite like popular opinion, I am very competitive. But at the same time, for the most of my games that I'm playing, they're casual. So if I'm going to a bigger event where I suspect Mance and Free Folk might be, sure, I'm going to bring out all the big guns. But if I'm doing a looking for game, casual type game, and I'm playing Martels, I just, because of the negative perception that Doran's four-point NCU brings, I would just rather leave him. But additionally, it's also a, a calculated choice because my Harmon Euler list that I run as the primary I choose not to include Doran in case I run into that hard counter where I might actually want the option to play, um, to be able to play Euler. So what I'm saying is I, I run Euler and then I pair that with Roos. And the Roos list has Lady Nim because I put Roos in Royal Guard and with Lady Nim and you, you, you going down, Roos can just pop off and just do massive damage with spread fear into the unit with UUU. Um, at any rate, giving him the critical blow and vicious on those Royal Guard makes Roos shine. So I've got Lady Nim in my Roos list. That means if I put Doran in my Euler list, if I'm playing something like Baratheons with Olena, they can almost guarantee that I'm not going to run the Doran list. So I, I kind of put myself in a spot where I'm telegraphing what list I take. The, so really? all of those things combined, I just don't run Doran. Um, I, I like Oberon in the one and Lady Nim in the other. Always Peter I, Baelish and Ilaria. I think it's an interesting point in that um, I counter, obviously, to the fact that, you know, I said that I, I think that Doran's the best NCU in the game for me. I would take him in every faction if he was available. Let's just say, for example, he was a neutral NCU. I would, he, he would be more than Peter Baelish. He would be the first thing I picked every faction because of the softer control side of things that I see he has. Um, yet, counter to that, I do actually think that he will get more negative press and more kind of um, more, more negative play experience assigned to him and more ire and more hatred than he actually deserves because I don't think that he is unbeatable at all. Um, I just think that the pressure he puts on your opponent is very, very, very valuable uh, and, and distinctly plays into the way that I like to play, which is I like to apply pressure to my opponent and make them make the the, the first move and then try to counter that. Um, I do think that it's interesting that, you know, th this idea that if I'm playing casually and I don't want my opponent to have the negative play experience, I won't bring him. And yet, I don't think that you're nerfing yourself that hard. 
Martels have other plays. They they are still powerful in other rights, which is why I think that Doran has such an impact as a four-point NCU. You haven't even had to sacrifice one point of list building to squeeze a five-point NCU in. He's still as cheap as you can buy an activation. You bring him, and yet the rest of your army still can do very, very powerful things. Um, and Martels still have a lot of power on the board, on the tactics deck. Everything else plays well. Doran is just uh, this other kind of game that you play inside of that and uh, can I think will draw more attention than it deserves because Martels can win in their own right without him. Um, he will become the point of most hatred, though, I think, without him actually winning games or losing games for the Martels. Yeah, I think like uh, that's why I said it's it's fine. I mean, Doran Doran is a fine NCU um, in a sense that uh, he is just I think like he's just part of the game that you need to consider. Um, he's not exactly out of winning when you're when you're having him. At the same time, you also don't need to like bust your balls in trying to beat him as well. He's just part of the game, and we just need to sort of um, accept the fact that he's uh, he's now part of the game and. We need to find ways to defeat him, and um, which is a nice segue to uh, the second part of this uh, this discussion of so how do we beat Martel, or at the very least, how must a player uh, consider their tactics and strategy when they're up against uh, a Martel deck or a Martel list? And uh, maybe we can start with that, Britt. Yeah, I think so. I think it's time to start talking about things that you can do against them. So um, Carlo, actually, one positive that came from uh, the conversation between he and I that got briefly interrupted, um, the the analogy that he used seems perfect to me. So when you're playing against Martels, and in particular when they have Doran's NCU, I think you have to view it as you're the attacker and they're the defender. Um, that's the type of mission you're playing, I think almost regardless of what the, the scenario is. So the reason that I say that is because a lot of people, and it's really a good way to play the game, is to play this patient, kind of slow game, wait until later rounds, make things happen, wait for your opponent to make a mistake, things like that. I think the problem with that type of play against Martels is that if you're so acclimated to that style of play, because it does win games, um, if you try to do that against Martels, you're doing exactly what they want. So. I'm not saying to recklessly go charge them. I'm not saying to cowboy your sworn brothers with watch captain right in their face, let them get surrounded and killed. But to an extent, you have to have a sense of urgency to get engagement started. The sooner you can start to engage them and start to dwindle their numbers down, because keeping in mind, a lot of Harmon Euler lists are 48 wounds. Uh, they have spiteful truce as a way to heal, and then they have the money bags. But generally, that's it. Um, I think the faster you can get in there, get them to burn their defensive resources, or even hopefully if you can get in there when they have a three card hand, they haven't been able to tap the letters and redraw the likelihood that they have Dune and UUU and things like this. It's, it's unlikely. I think you want to go punch them in the mouth, get them to burn those resources. If they have them, get them out of the way and gone from the game or punch them before they get the chance to even grab those cards. And then you can just hammer, hammer, hammer. And I think once you make that commitment to go into them, you have to stay on the gas pedal because they can swing the game back to their favor in the late rounds by shutting off your healing, uh, 
building up some of these strong damage combos with like battle endurance on Flademen. You don't want those units running around in round five, um, particularly if they haven't hit you with rising temps yet. If they put rising temps on you and then charge you with Flademen, mm -hmm. the likelihood that they're going to wipe you the next round is almost a guarantee. So I think in general, you got to get in their face and punch them hard and don't let up until they've run out of resources and that they, they, you've taken them out of the game. So uh, I think, yeah. Um, so just, uh, so my, my earlier comments about Martel being tanky is very reliant on what cards they have. Uh, mm. I think Brett was sort of mentioning it that, you know, your opponent only has a three card hand. Um, they had to, for example, use two cards just to make sure that you don't do what you want which leaves them to a one-card hand, which basically means that their defense is very low. And if you look at um, the Martel's uh, profile, as in their unit's profile, outside of like the Royal Guard, which is the premier tank unit, but they're still only 4-plus uh, armor safe with okay morale at 5-plus. If you're looking at like uh, Spearmen, um, they're really bad defensively at 5-plus armor and 6-plus morale. And what else is typical? Sand Skirmisher is a bit, bit of an anomaly because they have 4-plus armor, save for a unit that I think has 5-plus. But um, besides from that, Martel doesn't really have a lot of armors. Um, so the fact that uh, range unit hurts them a lot is also like a large consideration for you to, to look at how you're supposed to counter a Martel unit. Um, their premier range unit is going to be Sand Skirmisher, which is a short-range unit which means that um, if you position your archers correctly, you can take a plink at them before they get to even like um, move and shoot range uh, against you, the Martel line. So that's also like uh, one thing to consider as well when you're making a list. Have a lot of range units. Well, not exactly a lot of range units, but have some pressure in the range units. And why do I say that? Because if they're bringing Doran on turn two, and Carlo mentioned this, they will, they will then need to take Crown or... Sun Spear Gardens in order to for them to give them both benefit to Duran, which means that um, if they choose not to take it, that means sword is open, bag is open, letter is open, then you will start slowly starve the Martel players of cards because then they have to take zones for Martel to uh, for Duran to give their best effect, and then because you're taking uh, the zone that they're essentially giving to you you'll have a stack of cards where they only have like three stacks of cards and you'll have condition tokens on, on, on the Martel players as well. So for me, um, just to sort of uh, echo the sentiment of Brad, time is, on, uh, is against you when you're fighting against Martel. You have to get in there relatively quickly, maintain your line uh, in a coherent manner at round, round two. Be careful of like flanking sand skirmishers, for example. But you want to strike them at the very least middle of round two, if not earlier than that, well, middle of round two, round, round three, where they may be at their weakest. Because otherwise, Battle Endurance is online, uh, Rising Temperature is online. They have a full stack of cards, which means at least one of them has Unbound, Unbent, Unbroken. And it just becomes sort of like an exercise in trying to get through all these cards just for you to get to punch the Martel player. And... Um, you don't want that, essentially. I think that um, I think that when you think about the game against Martels, um, you you do have to you have to become the aggressor, um, and 
and and I think what's interesting about that, and one of the reasons why Mattels um, are doing so well at the moment, is that personally, I think that in in the game as it is right now, in 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 the balance patch that is 2021 season one, concerted aggression is one of the hardest things to do well. I think that um, you know uh, playing uh, playing the mission, uh, playing a grinding game. Playing, um, playing tricksy movement are all actually far easier to pull off um, because of the relatively low damage output of units by comparison to where they used to be back in, um, you know, uh, 1.6 version of the game, for example. Um, and tabling opponents if they refuse to engage you and they try to frustrate you is 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 close too impossible a lot of the time and so um it's really about understanding um understanding how aggressive you can be without putting yourself in terrible terrible over over kind of overexerted overstretched positions and putting yourself in bad places um combined with um like understanding where where the limit of that is of course your goal needs to be i think against um the martels is to go out there and as you say like round round three is going to be very very key for you you need to have either done some damage in round two or really set up to be to be very aggressive and very damaging in round three and what you want to do i think is um when playing that concerted aggression you want to go out there and do that damage in round two round three get to a position but then you need to reassess where you're at you need to think like from this position, can I now hold all the objectives such that it won't matter if Doran scores every round because I'll score more points? Or do I need to keep going, you know, straight in there? Because it could then, that's where they could trap you with their high, you know, their, their high round um, rising temperatures. Suddenly you, you, you think you're well ahead. All their cards have got their major power level and, uh, and you get trapped and kind of uh, what you thought was a winning position. You started to chase, maybe even tabling your opponent might not be an opportunity. So I think it's about um, very reserved, uh, controlled aggression, and it needs to be in as many places as possible. That's not easy to pull off. I think that it's actually one of the hardest tactics to play, but it's being spreading damage wide across their army um, so that they have to expend their resources as much as possible. If you try and go all in on one unit, make a big explosive play, then there's a chance that you're really going to just lose the game off of a huge unbowed, unbent, unbroken, you know, combined with some cards that shut down the damage of your attack. And if that's all you were focused on, all you had set up, then you're going to be in for a really bad time with quite good reliability. But if you can offer lots of threats at all times against the Martels, then you can start to expend their resources, you can start to exhaust them, and you can start to do enough wounds to what is their limited stat profile. So I do think that, coming back to it again, ranged units is a very, very key part of that. It allows you to relieve pressure on the tactics board when otherwise you might not otherwise be able to with the swords. Being able to take it and get good use of it is incredibly powerful. And uh, yeah, I think I think that list building is going to be a very hard thing against Martels. I don't have loads of experience with it myself yet. Um, and I think that it really could shake up the way people think about their lists and the way that 
what people bring to the table. So I'm excited to see that. Yep, I completely agree. I think there, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there, there's something that has been introduced to the game that kind of broke up some of the staleness, right? Um, obviously, you have Mance, who's meta-dominant. We don't need to spend every podcast talking about it or dunking a little bit more on Mance, but outside of him, you still had some other lists that were kind of more or less settled. There were these lists that work, these lists that work, these ones that don't. And I think Martels have done a pretty nice job of shaking up some of the stuff that's been established as what's strong because it, it just sometimes it just doesn't work into Martels, um, particularly with that um, the ability to block healing. It, it does a lot against their ability to play the long game, like you said. So uh, do I want the game to turn into... 1.6 where it's all about tabling or at least killing enough that you remove their ability to make any comeback no i i miss things about 1.6 i think the games were really thrilling um and i was just mentioning yesterday that i think currently the most thrilling armies to watch are martel's night's watch and maybe to some extent starks um i think all of them kind of have the ability to make things happen when you would normally consider them out of the match. And and I think that's good. That's positive for me. And so I'm happy with just a couple of armies really having that comeback from the dead type, uh, make a rally and, and make a huge comeback. Uh, I don't want it everywhere. And I'm fine that it's rare and doesn't necessarily happen every game. It just kind of takes me back to as much as everyone kind of hated it. I It was so funny watching Starks because if Bran and Hodor Berserkers were ever on the board in 1.6, the Stark player had a chance to win. And I feel like with, you know, Harmon Euler, if there's Dervishes and Flayed Men alive and Battle Endurance is out, there's always a chance that the Martell player can make some crazy comeback no matter how bad it looks. And so that's again why I say you've got to go pedal to the metal and and not let up because I've been in a situation where I wiped both Flayed Men and nearly still ended up losing to the dervishes that I hadn't touched and the spears because of battle endurance. You lost a dervish? Who, I, who, nearly. Who, nearly. Who uses dervish? <laughs> I, dervish? Who, who uh, uses dervish? <laughs> hey, a lot of people use dervish. J uh, Jacob uses dervish. Um, I think Mickey uses dervishes. Um, I think generally if you see an eight activation list, yeah. From Martels, you're seeing dervishes. Ah, nice, I, I, nice, I think... nice, nice point that you've made that uh, that point because Martel is now very limited to playing seven. I think it's the most competitive build that Martel has is seven activation, which uh, is a bit difficult to fight against eight or even nine. But nine is pretty rare, where eight is sort of like the norm. Where if you want to push Martel to eight activation, then they'll have to start dropping uh, some of their components like. Like Royal Guard, or well, maybe not Royal Guard. The first thing to go will probably be Skirmishers with Spear Lord, because it is like an eight points unit, and then you downgrade it to like um, something else, and then you add like a second Spearman. So their components are still relatively expensive, because Martel relies on a lot of these sort of like heavy hitters, like Flateman for eight, uh, Skirmisher with Spear Lord for eight, Royal Guard for seven, or Royal Guard plus uh, the Spear Captain for eight. So they're Packing a lot of expensive units, and I think 
the list that I like to bring is mostly seven. And if you just remove, like, for example, one of the components, and then suddenly their cunning ploy is a non-card, because then you have to sacrifice like a seven-point unit to just give another movement to like an eight-point unit, which you don't want. You don't want that to happen. That exchange, uh, you know, you don't want that exchange to happen with your card. I I, I think that is very interesting. That um, the power of Martels sits in this seven seven or eight point you know, kind of um, gray area. Um, there are some people, you know, um, relatively high skilled players, uh, high ranked players saying that they that they think that the eight activation Martel is where it's at and others saying that, you know, and, and a lot of success has already been seen at seven with just like really, you know, double flayed men kind of setups and stuff like that. That's what got the first amount of people's attention. Ulla, double flayed men. Um, two or three incredibly powerful units. Throw battle endurance on them. Throw all all your cards at them, uh, and just uh, and just and just fight. And actually, surprisingly, you know, win against a lot of factions that were considered very powerful and fighty in that way. But I think that's very interesting. That you know, maybe there's a move by some players towards eight, but that but that the faction is making sacrifices to get there. There's even talk of some people, you know, really. Um, should we say genuinely giving a lot of thought to a four NCU setup, uh, which I do think um, is kind of crazy. The water gardens can maybe enable that, but it's not quite the same as the three NCU setup. Uh, the way that three NCUs versus three NCUs is always just, you know, like nobody loses in that sense. Um, if you play four NCUs into three NCUs, generally speaking, you lose. Um, you lose You lose an, an activation and tempo against the opponent. So uh, that's quite different. Anyway, um, I think that is very interesting that they sit at this 7-8 borderline because the, the dominant thing in the game right now sits on an 8 or a 9. Uh, sorry, a nine or a ten. Actually, like there's almost barely a free folk list which won't run nine at base. And actually, since the existence of um, of Varamir, uh, that's actually stretched to the ten category. Uh, I believe it takes a lot more skill to play the lower activation faction. That's because a lot of your activations you have to take without knowing what your opponent will do. You have to predict what your opponent will do and kind of set up for where they're going to be before they even move there. Um, so I think there is a lot more room for a person to be the better player and still beat Martels by playing equal activations or higher activations than the Martels. If you play seven versus seven, if you play seven versus eight with the Martels being the seven, there's a lot more room for that Martel player to make a bad move, which you can then um, really capitalize on. Whereas that almost never happens um, with very, very high activation free folk. The free folk player will just outweigh you. They'll do nothing up until the point where suddenly a load of chariots charge you, right? That's, uh, that's how uh, high level free folk are generally playing out at the moment. So I think that there is, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to or very happy with the idea that Martels could be one of the new tournament like high performing staples because I think that it's a lot harder to play a low activation faction and there's a lot more room there for the better player to win rather than just the better list because I think right now what 
what's fatigued me the most most recently is that it feels at high performing tournaments that the list wins the game not the player when we look mm-hmm. at uh, the results of uh, the london grand tournament both the uh, major 128 part of it and then the uh, the high ranking uh, invitational part of it uh, which are 16 best players in the world practically um Unfortunately, Brett didn't make it. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. <laughs> we'll throw in that bit of shade at the last minute. Um, and then and then when you compare how incredibly similar those top finishing positions were to the finishing positions of the French French National Championship with the finishing positions of the Polish National Championship, they, they together make up the three biggest tournaments that this game's ever had. And yet, basically, identical lists finished almost in first, second, and third in all three of those tournaments. At that point, we're starting to say, well, it's the list that's won the game, not the player. Now, the player has to have, you know, a pretty high level of skill too. You can't, it doesn't just pilot itself. And there are plenty of players running those lists and not finishing first, second, and third. But I think that when you throw that out and make it a seven activation list, which is possibly the best thing in the game right now there is a lot more opportunity for that person to make mistakes to undo themselves and to 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 allow somebody running not the best list in the game to still beat them so i think that that's what's most refreshing to me about martels is at least for the moment i'm of the opinion that they will be a uh, a far more difficult faction to do incredibly well with than than our current uh, tournament leader. Yeah, because the, the 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 challenge is quite clear. Yeah, for for Martel is that they need their units' quality to win their battles. Because right now, um, and with like the next batch of releases coming out, they don't exactly have like the four point things that uh, that pushes the faction easily to eight activation. Uh, they're Cheapest unit is a five pointer, which is quite, which is okay. But uh, you're not exactly happy running two spearmans um, with your list, except if you're pushing for like eight, eight activation. But again, the fact that you're bringing two spearmans means that you're making a sacrifice in meaning that your your line is squishier than what you think it is. And I think um, the biggest challenge of Martel is just that. Because they want to play a very sort of lean and elite game, and they have things like cunning ploy, once one of their activation is down, and then suddenly you're eliminating like two cards from the deck because you're sacrificing a seven point to activate an eight point, for example, or vice versa, and that's not where you want it to be. And but yeah, I think that's interesting, yeah, Carlo, because uh, uh. The activation now is just like nine activation because you know you just sort of like play it, you you. You let your opponent plays the game, and then when they're finished with their activation, you still have like two more activation on top of them, and it's just like, well, I guess I don't play the same game as you do at that point. Yeah, I think I think it's um, it's a very very uh, difficult. It's very difficult to play the lower activation faction and consider everything that's going to happen. Now, of course. Motels still actually are doing it in a slightly different way because of the existence of Cunning Ploy, because of the existence of loads of cards. There's still a lot of that mental tax being put on your opponent to to not walk into one of their traps. But just the existence of being the higher activation player 
is in itself an inc in a huge mental tax on your opponent because they have to think about, well, if I activate this unit, will that unit make some, some move that I didn't predict and then also activate again before me on the start of next round? and make a really, really big play and suddenly give them away into the game. Um, so Cunning Ploy actually sort of is what is allowing them to exist in that seven activation sphere and still have something of the same effect, but it's not a continuous, constant pressure on you. It's a possibility that it might be there. And like you say, they're normally relying on a single unit of um, Spearman as a five-point unit to give their activation away. So if you can apply pressure to that unit, if you can um, basically force it to either need to use its activation to keep itself alive, to keep itself safe, or you can just go out and kill it. Best, <laughs> no, 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 Martel, uh, no Martel help if they're dead already. Um, then you're uh, you're really gonna start to find ways into the game, and I think it's gonna be very interesting seeing what ways people find into the Martel matchup. I still think that they're going to be the favorite in a lot of lot of matchups um they are currently showing to be very very powerful doesn't mean that the martels are weak we all we're here discussing them because we think they're very very powerful but i think there's more ways into that game if you apply pressure to them than there are into um into some other things which are dominant yep and i think um you know as you're talking about the activation parity and the activation advantage so uh, seems like a pretty good time to transition into some things that I've done to uh, to be able to overcome Martels. Now, this is not like a, a flex session. It's just more or less me sharing with the community what I've had success with against them. And of course, one of the big things is uh, Night's Watch. So I've made it a point to challenge Euler specifically in matches. I've tried to play against strong players and i think that i have um i think tom tyler is a strong player um i can't remember everybody that i've that i've played but um that said uh what i found a ton of success with is the kind of i'll call it the evolved quote unquote night's watch list that i'm running it is john snow and ranger hunters ranger hunters with a watch captain cold hands watch marshal ghost and then i've got peter baelish bowen marsh and amon so what I'm able to do with that list against the Martels is put a ton of pressure on early because I have the reach to be charging in round one if I really want to. And then I've got the two units that can essentially hybrid melee if I want to do that or if I'm worried about it, they can essentially just dance around and shoot. Now, similarly, I've had good luck with high activation Stark. I ran an eight activation Howland list that I, I tried the new Bog Devils um i put rickon and asha and bog devils then i had cranogs with the survivalist cranogs alone uh howland reed in a unit of she bears uh shaggy dog and then i ran peter baelish uh aria and um catlin as my ncus and essentially i just scouted orders and shot them as much as i could avoided engagement by having two three of my five units are able to just automatically retreat out when they're charged. And then I have Aria to pull Howland out of engagement if things get hairy. So these are two lists in particular that I quite like that have had success into Martels, and they all have something in common. They can avoid melee, and they have ways to shoot. So from where I'm standing, and maybe I'm wrong, and I'll, I'll pass it to you, Carlo, to see what you think, but from where I'm standing, denying them engagement and shooting them 
can be a good way of dealing with Martels. Yeah, I think um, I think there's really two strategies that you can go down. I have to say, actually, these are these are definitely you, you're talking about games where you've had success. But for me, this is still entirely theoretical. Uh, you know, I've I've played very few games against Martels. I haven't like really tested this, but I see two different routes. Um, you can either um, look to deny those engagements and look to do lots of damage with range. I think we all accept that that is uh, one of the Martel weaknesses, and I think that that's reasonably straightforward. I think there is another option um, with them playing that seven activation um, kind of army list quite heavily. The Martels, most previous um like to now kind of list building mentalities at least for me um but i know lots of other people follow it too is this idea um of of taking lots of cheap units um and then really putting your eggs into one basket really setting up one big destructive play it could be flayed men it could be lance cavalry it could be you know it could be ranger ranger hunters with a with a watch captain you know something around the eight even nine point mark maybe often cavalry, um, set up to do lots of your damage, and the rest are just trying to be support units as a whole list-building mentality. I think that um, there could be success, and this is definitely theoretical and, and, and maybe, a, maybe, a, maybe could be wrong, um, if, if we actually look to like widen our range of threats and actually look for some efficiency in units around the six and seven point mark, which I do think that Night's Watch really can um, can can fall into that category quite a lot. Um, looking to offer more like three or ideally even four powerful units that all threaten at the same time. So we're talking, you know, three units of Swarm Brothers or you know Swarm Brothers veterans and um, Ranger hunters, for example. If we can offer threats in that six and seven point range in multiples, then I think that we'll really expend the Martel's tanky resources and we can threaten those weak spearmen that your opponent wants to keep out of combat while also engaging the other units. Now, it's going to be a very difficult balancing act of not letting their very powerful eights you know, dunk on our six and sevens and then swing round and, and save their fives. But it's going to be uh, a very different play style than I think that a lot of competitive players have kind of sunk into the groove of over, um, you know, season one and even before that with uh, 2021, which is that we put a lot of power into a single play, a single big move, and 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 we look for that to gain a foothold and an advantage, and then we press that advantage on into the rest of the battlefield. It might be quite a different play style to play a bit wider, look for things around the six and seven point mark to do a lot more work than they used to do. And uh, that's what I'm interested to see, how it performs into Martels and see if it has an effect on competitive list building um, down the line. And how about you, Van? Uh, any any counter Martel strategies or thoughts on what you bring to defeat them? So I think like for me, I would go with like my usual losing condition when I'm playing Martel. Yeah. So this is regardless of um, what the opponent's list are, or maybe like, you know, counting, you know, player skill differences or et cetera. But I feel um, for Martels, um, one of the losing conditions that they have, especially if they're playing like the seven activation, is that they lose control of the objectives uh, relatively fast in the game. 
um, against, like, for example, eight. You know, we're talking about Game of Thrones, where, you know, um, the opponent can just dedicate two cheap, maybe four pointers on the back, while they then bring their sevens um, to the middle of the board, where then you have to sort of, you know, counter them with your seven, whereas your seven and eight will then need to sort of um, counter their seven and eight as well. So Martel can really lose objectives uh, relatively fast in the game. And then for them to sort of break into the opponent's objective, um, they need to have some sort of either momentum for them, like having battle endurance at like the correct timing, or for example, having cunning play at the right timing. So there's a lot of variance in where and when Martels will strike. And this is probably like their biggest sort of challenge in that it, they're very card reliant. One counterplot, you know, unlike your battle endurance or cunning ploy, can mean a lot of differences to the Martel player because then it's then one of their uh, key cards gone and that contributes to their uh, offensive operations. So Martel is sometimes you lose Martel because you just draw like the absolute worst cards. Like we're talking about Roinish Vengeance opening hand, Dune Tactics opening hand, um, cards that just doesn't do anything until like round three or round four. And then you just, you know, you're desperately trying to cycle through your deck and then you finally found, you know, the Unbound, Unbit, Unbroken. But at that point, like you're already sort of losing half of your trace and opponents already on your, on your front. They have initiative at four. So more so than ever, uh, Martel is very reliant on their cards. So sometimes, you know, they just get like a very bad hand in like their first two or three rounds of the game or one, two or three rounds of the game. And they just crush their momentum uh, straight away because they can't recover from it. Yes, there might be a time at around maybe four, five, six, where if their Flayed Man is alive with Battle Endurance, that they can turn around the game. But at that point, usually you're sort of like maybe three points behind. And then when then Doran kicks it like around four or five, you're still like three rounds behind and it, the gap closes to one. And then by around round six, uh, essentially your opponent will win at like round 10 and it'll be at like eight or nine. So I think um, for me, the losing condition of Martel is just having bad cards and uh, losing a key unit relatively early in the game um, because then you're already seven activation. You're now down to six activation against their eight. And that's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, mental taxing that you need to do because each activation now is much more important uh, than it was before. So I think for me, like that's uh, probably the losing condition of Martel as far as uh, experience is concerned. Brett. Yep, that's a pretty fair assessment. Um, again, I think everybody, every you can take every faction and you can kind of look at their tactics deck and say. Yeah, you know, cards, card order matters when I drew these card matters because I, it does for everyone. I just think it's more pronounced in some factions. Um, I think Greyjoy's, it's much more pronounced, uh, the order in which you get your cards. And I think Martel's, yeah, they're one of them as well. Uh, drawing Dune Tactics as your kind of like your last two cards, they become nearly a throwaway card at that point, right? Um, if your opponent has fewer destroyed ranks than you, at the end of the game, as a Martel, you're probably in some trouble, right? And if you open up with double, like double uh, Rising Temps, then you're so sad because the the way to get the most value out of Rising Temps is to play it like in a round three or a round four when you're going first in the next round to make sure that those debuffs last for as long as possible before they eventually get their 
ability to take the swords. So I can agree with that, that Martells, yes, they have great cards, but there can be a very feels-bad moment where they draw them in a really crappy order, or it's a super important turn around, and they didn't get anything that they can use. Like, um, you know, if you're in the position that you want, and you start drawing cunning ploys that you could have used earlier, you know. I, I can go on and on and on, but obviously it's it's very possible to draw cards at a point where they're essentially useless. Um, so that is one thing that, that Martells don't have going for them, right? They don't have a bow and marsh. They don't have a battle strategy uh, or um, bookkeeping. They don't have a bookkeeping. They don't have a battle plan, which Martells actually... I could see battle plan for them because i wouldn't mind throwing away sand diplomacy to go get another card you know but uh, uh they don't have any of these things they don't have an ncu that works like roger harlaw so it's definitely kind of a built-in disadvantage for them and you know circling back to again i think that martels are beatable there's a number of ways that you can beat them which is why i don't mind if martels are the quote-unquote juggernaut of the of the army i think that they've built in enough weaknesses that I can overcome what they do. I think uh, building on that, um, it, it's it's a general discussion and strategy, even outside of Martel's. <laughs> um, but I think it's very true of Martel's um, right now that um, if you if you look at your opponent and you make the assumption that they're going to play, shall we say, perfectly, um, or at least how you expect them to react to every situation that you put them into, and you think. Um, and you think that they're going to have the perfect cards to shut you down continuously, then I think as the person trying to be the aggressor, trying to take the advantage, um, then you're going to paralyze yourself with inactivity. So although you don't want to take huge risks, you don't want to massively overextend yourself, you can't assume that your opponent always has the cards to shut you down. You can't always assume that they're going to react in the perfect way to your plays. You have to leave some room for them to not have the card. You have to leave some room for them to maybe make a mistake. And if you can look for play styles that really, you know, create opportunities for your opponent to give you give you ways into the game, then I think that that's what you have to play for. You can't sit down and just like have thought, well, he's definitely going to have unbent, unbowed and broken. So there's no point in me trying to make a big aggressive play that revolves around panic. You, If that's what your list is built around, if that's what your best situation right now is, then go ahead and make it. They may or may not have that card. So don't be paralyzed by what they might have. Just try and work out what they do and don't have, and play to those. Uh, play to your current conditions. I say is the is, is the last bit of strategy and help that I have for anybody. That's particularly true of Martels, but it's true of all factions too. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, um, it's it's a it's a game uh, it's a game of chance, right? Um, sometimes you just take it, sometimes you don't, um, and most of the time. Um, when, when you have a plan, it's best to execute the plan and not to overthink too much about what happens if that plan might might backfire on you. Um, yeah, this is a very generic strategy and might might be applied against Martel, might not be applied against Martel. But uh, the thing about Martel is that because they need to expand resources to protect their their units, the the sooner you can get those resources out from your hand 
which means that you have another window later on during the round or later on during the next few rounds in order to do those attacks to your opponent. So when you have a chance, just you know, just try it. What's the worst that could happen? It bounces, you get stuck. But I'm pretty sure at that moment, like uh, they've already expanded some resources, and and then it just becomes a sort of like a grind where you're in front of your opponent. So again, as a closing thought for me for for Martel is that um, I think a lot of opponent uh, frustration coming from Martel is just simply because they have so many things to think about. I think this is a recurring trend that uh, me and Carla was just talking about. A lot of effects that both you and your opponent have to keep track of. It's different from, like, say, you're up against Lannister. You just need to think about counterplot, right? Oh, what if he has counterplot? You know, you don't even think about bribery because, you know, it's it's just removable with, like, a successful morale test and a money bag. But you always think about counterplot. Whereas in Martel, you have to think about, oh, does he have Dune Tactics? Oh, does he have Rising Temperature? Oh, does he have Unbound and Unbroken? Oh, uh, what happens if I take Sword? Uh, do I take Tyene? Uh, do I have to block Doran Martel? So there's a lot of these small layers of decision that creates an experience where it just becomes frustrating because you don't know what the bright play is. Usually when you play a lot of Game of Sif, it all becomes autopilot, what you do in each every round. But because Martel's design in which they are taxing you for every little bit of things that you do, it then becomes much more uh, stressful for you in order for you to come up with the right right place so just general tips against martel uh read the cards they will tell you what they do and just to have a bit more awareness of the game state and uh what each of the unit can do and what should each of the cards on your table do and just to make sure that your opponent also does the same thing and then they can uh, they also could keep track uh, of things that they have on you so that's uh probably my closing thought. Maybe we can uh, give it to Brett for his own closing thought, and maybe we can wrap this up. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, do you, before I close it up, do you have any just general thing to add or any any summation that you want to do, Carlo? Uh, no, I think uh, I, I think that Van uh, really, really hit the nail on the head there. And um, yeah, I think uh, just, uh, just I'm super, super excited to see where they're at. Um, even if they become the new frustration, um, at least it's different. At least it's new. Um, so I'll be, I'll be, I'll be looking forward to that um, change, if it even is a change. I'm, I'm not yet convinced that they are more powerful than what already exists in the game. Um, and, uh, and the faction excites me. Uh, going right back to the start, um, I don't think I'd ever even really thought about it, but I think that they do implement a lot of Lannister-style uh, gameplay and strategies, or what people would like Lannisters to be able to do and that's uh, that was always my first love in this game so uh, yeah that's that I'm still looking forward to the faction of course for me in the UK I keep saying looking forward to because they haven't actually been released in Europe unfortunately so they're still mm. uh, an exciting new theoretical thing in the future for me um, that uh, I'm looking forward to over the next year yep and it, 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 it's the same for me I'm excited to see what they do to the meta um, kind of the elephant in the room is a looming potential patch uh traditionally we've i think traditionally we've already seen an announcement about it by this time right i think season one didn't they tease it before christmas yeah, at any rate it's November. it's irrelevant we at some point a patch comes right whether it's this year or i don't i don't know um so 
if if there's some patch looming, then it'll it'll be interesting to see what where Martells fall after that patch where the chips fall. Um, you know, if Mance gets some adjustment, which I think everybody believes he will, what does that do for everybody else's list building? And then to that point, what does that do to Martells? Um, and to some extent, going to a competitive event, you have to keep Mance in mind. So what is the Mance list building doing? to any potential counter Martell building. And these are all things I'm excited to see. Uh, they're all things that, um, yeah, I think is going to be pretty cool. Um, and I, I, I kind of want to see it unfold. But for me, if the question is, uh, Brett, how concerned are you about Martells? Are they going to become the next Mance? Is Harmon Euler the next Mance? My, my answer is no. There's too many things that beat it. And that, that's, my, that's my closing thought, is that even if they're the juggernaut that they are and they can make seven activations work at the end of the day, this is still an activation advantage game. As long as Night's Watch, Starks, um, even some other factions, if they really dig deep, can hit the nine mark. And as long as those aforementioned factions can easily hit the eight mark with heavy hitters, I don't think that a seven activation list being at the top is ever going to be so far at the top that you show up to a tournament, you see seven activation Martell, even if it's double flayed men, they've got door and NCU. There's no way that you sit across the table and think I've lost this game before it even started because you have within the design of the game itself, you have that activation advantage out there that you can, that you can do. And I, I think I'm happy with that. We're fine. The world's not ending. It's just Martel. It's yeah, I agree. It's not ending. It's nothing to. There's something to write home about. They're mildly frustrating and they're strong, but it's nothing to reach towards the sky. And you know, they don't need to swing down the hammer and and do any emergency patches to Martels and you know anything like that. Um, so here's hoping. Uh, we have seen it before. The Blood Riders, I think, got got adjusted within three or four months, right, Carlo? Yeah, I think um, I think the only thing that gives me um, a little bit of trepidation for the future is that um, there is there is this looming idea of a patch. Like everybody talks about it continuously. Everybody expects it to be you know about a year since the last one. Um, I don't. I, I really don't know if that's true. If that's actually coming, but um, I think right now, slightly untested. But you know, there is there is a lot of data already from uh, from there's submissions to stats and stuff like that um i think that lvo will be a big first test for it in um you know a, a relatively high profile tournament there is real chance there is real discussion that martels might be currently rolling with the best of the best out there um whether or not they beat them specifically is is a big question mark but they're definitely in that discussion I am a little bit nervous that maybe the best of the best might be about to be adjusted, um, might be about to not be the best of the best anymore. And that has a possibility that if they don't look at Martels at the same time, don't look at Martels in that ecosphere, then the Martels may be left as these number one outliers and may become a new problem, a new uh, issue for the game. Um, that is looking down the down the line. I'm not scared of them as an outlier and an issue in the game state at the moment right now. They seem more like a refreshing change to it. 
But if this patch comes and they, you know, say, oh, there's not enough information about there, there's not enough data, as they often say, to look at Martels, they're too new. I think that that might be a big mistake if we see, shall we say, the expected nerfs that lots of people think are coming down the line to some of the number one things in the game right now. That's uh, that's that's what has me a little bit nervous, but it all depends on the dates of when these things change, um, whether or not they really get looked at, and uh, how, how big those changes might be. In the past, of course, they have buffed things while also nerfing some of the things, so some of the buffs really can bring some factions up. Changes to Baratheons and the, and the Starks in the past were all brilliant changes um, and really, you know, gave them gave them a fighting chance. So, um, still looking forward to uh, to the Martels and what happens with them over the next few months. One hundred percent agree, and uh, I'm sure Van, you agree. You're working really hard on painting them, so you obviously have some faith that they're going to be able to make some noise. Oh, since I've won them in Singapore, I've been very invested. Yep, and I'm painting mine too. So I find them, I find them to be fun. Um, now that I've played against them, and I, they're not some like unbeatable monster, I feel pretty okay playing them. Um, so we'll we'll see how it shakes out. And uh, I think for everyone listening, we've probably offered you some pretty decent ideas for some things to try. Um, so you know, let us know how everything goes and feel free to jump in the conversations. And if you've stumbled upon some tech that works against Martels, feel free to share it in any of the various discords. We're all in Sunday Slaughter. We're all in the Stats Discord. I think we're all in the Small Council Radio Discord. So just get out there and share what you found. But uh, I think we can wrap it up here. So thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. We managed to bring three different time zones together and this was really fun. So. Just just for context, I think <laughs> it's like almost midnight for me. It's uh, lunchtime for Brett, and it's what the uh, supper lunchtime time for me as well. Yeah, <laughs> so, I live on American time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, you, I, I see. <laughs> I may not exist in an American time zone, but I live on American time. <laughs> yeah, this has well, been this has been the feat of uh, of coordination. Thank thank you for uh, thank you for bringing me back to the fold, guys. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. me. Yep, thanks thanks for coming on guys. We appreciate it. So, uh you guys have a good one and all of the listeners, uh good luck in the worst come. <laughs>